Hi, I'm Bruce Tolgan, author of The Art of Being Indispensable at Work, published by Harvard Business Review Press. And this is The Indispensables, a podcast featuring conversations with real go-to people who stand the test of time in the real world of work. Each week, I ask my guests what they do differently that sets them apart in the workplace, what makes them tick, and what makes them so successful. On this episode of The Indispensables, Bruce is joined by Art Harding of People AI. Welcome to The Indispensables. I'm Bruce Tolgan. Uh, today, I have Art Harding with us. Uh, he is an experienced uh, operator in the tech world. Uh, he's currently uh, running uh, a firm that's uh, called People AI. Um, and uh, you're going to love this. Wait, wait, wait till you meet this guy. Uh, Art Harding, welcome to The Indispensables. Thanks, Bruce. Thanks for having me. Um, it's great to be on the show today. Yeah, it's great to have you. And and and, and first, uh, uh, just tell us what is People AI. Sure, People AI is the leading revenue intelligence platform. Uh, we work with large enterprise businesses, helping them grow pipeline and revenue. Specifically, what we do is we leverage AI and machine learning to remove toil for sellers, remove a lot of the manual data entry tasks that people associate with working with their CRMs and their software systems and really move to just capturing that data, uh, curating it and presenting it to them in a way that helps them build pipeline, plan for pipeline and what we call modernized pipeline practices with a digital first sales and marketing motion. Wow. I mean, uh, I've, I've trained a lot of sales leaders and uh, worked with a lot of sales organizations. And, you know, uh, uh, what you hear almost every day is people even who are really good at sales, the part they do not like is, is having to get their notes into the CRM. Right. And it drives it drives um, uh, order management crazy. Right. Well, it's if you think about it, it's, it's even more just not even just the notes uh, as someone who's also spoken to and developed a lot of sellers and even welcomed folks to a company as part of like a new hire orientation. I'll often remind them that they're professionals. And if we look at other professionals, professional athletes, professional musicians, surgeons, how many of these other professionals are we asking to self-instrument what they're doing while they're doing it? It would be like watching a swimmer pop out of the pool at the Olympics to record their own time or, or a football player getting up after a play to, to text how many yards they think they ran with to the, to the ops team in the press box. And I think we're at an era now where the professional sellers have earned the right to get the support that they need to focus on the customer, the prospect, the conversation they're having, and really let technology to start take some of that maybe more burdensome compliance off of their plate. Yeah, that's that's so interesting. Uh, and, and it's certainly a, uh, I'd say every sales manager with whom I've ever worked, uh, they have at least some people who are really talented salespeople um, and, you know, but they have all their notes on the back of cocktail napkins or something. And, um, and, and then, um, you know, in some organizations, the salesperson will be responsible for sufficient revenue that you can get them an assistant or something, but, uh, many, uh, don't have that capacity. And I don't know that that's the best use of resources anyway. Uh, but, uh, uh, so it sounds like you, 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 you you have an artificial intelligence solution, uh, to help people streamline uh, maybe some of the business intelligence aspects of, of customer relationship management, and, and, but also some of the kind of nuts and bolts of uh, documentation day to day. 
Yeah, and it's 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 you know, and it's not just in sales and marketing. I think we're seeing this in our personal lives and our professional lives, which is so many, um, so much of what technology is bringing today is it's it's helping us with governance and compliance and you know the real low value tasks, which really challenges us or frees us. Um, it frees us to work on more forward thinking, anticipating quicker reaction time, bigger impact. But it, in some ways, it's a burden to learn a new set of skills where before you were so focused on being maybe studious and organized and this debate is sales more art or science. Um, I happen to believe that that it's not a debate. It's not an either or. It's an and. Um, there's absolutely a science to selling that can be performed artfully. So the more of the science we can make automatic and foundational, the more efficacy we can put into actually performing that science in, in an artful manner. Yeah, that's that's impressive, and uh, uh, and and I, it's compelling. Uh, so let's take a giant step back, and uh, uh, for those uh, who who have been living in the dark ages and don't know who Art Harding is, uh, uh, tell us your story. Uh, uh, you have have uh, a robust background yourself as as an operator, business operator. Uh, tell us about you. Uh, tell us your story. Yeah, I think it started early on. Um, I'm a born and bred New England boy. I used to have a wicked awesome accent. October, November, December. I'm a huge Red Sox <laughs> fan. Oh, well, uh, we have that in common. I bleed little Red Sox. There you go. Um, uh, we'll, we'll stay off shilling in this conversation, but we could go there. It's very inspirational. Um, probably, you know, my journey started with my mom, who was a, a punch card computer programmer in Northern Rhode Island in the 80s. So you imagine a, a woman as a computer programmer in the 80s was something really unique and got me my first computer. And because I thought of myself as a long term thinker, I thought, you know, they're going to need a lot of computer teachers in the future. So I, I set off on my way and went to school at Florida State down south and uh, enrolled as a secondary education computer science major. Uh, flash forward to today, um, thankfully, uh, I added that computer part to my background. And I would say as a leader today, I do think of myself as a teacher, um, but I've been in consulting services and sales. And in addition to that inspiration, that technology was going to be a part of our lives. I was really curious about the outside world. I had been on an airplane maybe once or twice, twice growing up. And the idea that you could get into consulting or services and actually go out and solve problems and see the world was, to me, seemed like a, an amazing uh, career path to pursue. And so that's what I did. Um, went out and spent a number of years in consulting, uh, software sales, and now various forms of go-to-market leadership across sales, marketing, and operations. Yeah. So uh, what was your immediate uh, past before you came to uh, People AI? So prior to People AI, um, I was a, a customer of People AI's, but I also ran go-to-market strategy and operations for a SaaS software company called New Relic, uh, which was about $500 million in revenue. We were a fast-growing SaaS company um, you know, in the late 2000s leading up to uh, just before the pandemic. Okay. Got it. And um uh, so, so uh, how did you get from being a a, a customer of uh, People AI to being uh, to running the place? <laughs> well, so what's interesting is you know, and I report to our founder, and I get to do a lot of the operating. I definitely, um, you know, Oleg, who's our CEO, is the founder and original visionary behind People AI. There was an interesting cross section between what New Relic did and what People AI does. New Relic was a company that did. Um, performance management and observability for people who wrote software that basically helped improve the performance of your software. And the way that you do that 
uh, is you instrument everything, you get data points, and you start to look for trends and anomalies that that can tell you something bad's happening to your software. Maybe like our Zoom video call or you know your streaming show on Netflix. As we looked at growing the business and where different forms of investments or stress were starting to show as New Relic was hyperscaling, it became clear to me that in the sales and marketing world, we didn't have near the telemetry or instrumentation that those of us who work with software and systems might have. And so uh, this is when I met Oleg, who had this vision that all of our customer interactions should be instrumented. Um, and we, they should be instrumented without burdening the human with actually doing that instrumentation themselves. So, you know, early analogies where people AI is a Fitbit for sellers, right? Logging your steps, giving you feedback. Um, and so by, by doing that, it gave us a lot of interesting instrumentation. I actually think that that's the foundation of what is a larger digital transformation going on in sales, which is sales was largely a very analog business that was a lot of trust, but verify, right? You hired people, you gave them a number, they got the outcome or they didn't. Um, but we can look at marketing sales and servicing our customers. And we can see that the role of technology is changing what marketing marketing in 2022, 23 is not what marketing was in 2010, eight, nine, right? Marketing is not. I think very- it's even substantially different from what it was in 2019. And uh, have you seen that? Do you, uh, are you one of those people who agrees that, gee, there's been uh, like 25 years worth of change in the last two or three years? Yeah, I don't know if I'd put a number on it, but I, I will tell you, I joined people about three months before the pandemic kicked off. And a lot of the trends that I think those of us who thought this digital transformation was taking place in marketing and sales, there's no question it accelerated. Anybody who wasn't sure what role technology was going to play in servicing their customers got pushed into the digital transformation pool you know, within 90 days. And whether you had a digital strategy or not, you were forced to come up with one. Right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and even so in uh, medical uh, equipment, medical device, uh, pharmaceutical sales, just for examples, anyone who is calling on doctors, um, you know, no longer welcome. Well, it, th- think about I, I used to make a, a little bit of a tongue in cheek joke that there were three professions resisting the opportunity to use technology before the pandemic, um, healthcare, education and enterprise selling. Right, and, and the three of them got pushed into the digital transformation pool a few years ago, and suddenly things like telemedicine, remote learning, and remote selling, none of which should be a ubiquitous all the time use case. No one wants to only sell virtually. Nobody only wants to interact with their doctor virtually, and no one should learn only virtually. But do virtual interactions play a role in a more comprehensive learning experience or more efficient healthcare experience. I can tell you some of my telemedicine visits as a parent, et cetera, the last few years have been joyous <laughs> that it's over and you know it starts and ends in 20 minutes without the clipboard and all the other driving into the doctors. And same thing with selling. There are just meetings that should be virtual. There are interactions that should be digital. But as always, you know, um, what the TV was going to kill movies or you know, MTV was going to kill the radio and, and digital selling is going to kill in-person relationships. I, I think we have a habit of over-rotating on these trends. I, I think it's a change, not just a complete pivot. Yeah, that's interesting. I like that perspective and, and surely uh, uh, time will prove you right. I mean, it's, it's not the case that we're all, I, you know, one of my jokes during the pandemic was 
that I've actually transformed into a hologram and <laughs> no longer will ever appear in person ever again. <laughs> you know? uh, so, uh, so, so let me ask you, uh, look, uh, first, well, what, what is the scope of, of People AI? So what, are, what is the scope of the outfit you're running? And I ask because I know you said you've been in large enterprises, you've played an operating role in substantial businesses. You've, you, you, you told me your pre-IPO uh, stage at, at uh, People AI, uh, but you are the kind of business leader who uh, takes enterprises uh, to the next level. Uh, what, what, what does that journey uh, look like here? Sure. So my my the scope of my remit at People is I am responsible as the COO for our marketing, sales, services, and what we would call our revenue operations function. So sales operations, marketing operations, etc. When the company was smaller, I had broader GNA responsibilities, including finance and HR. But recently divested those as we brought a CFO on board as the company scaled. Uh, the business went from you know I joined we had less than 50 customers, less than 100 employees. Now we're hundreds of enterprise customers from the size of Zoom, Oracle, Verizon, like large scale enterprises with hundreds of employees um, across the world. And uh, it's it's been a very interesting ride to be on the front edge of watching a market form, uh, which is this use of digital tools as we sell in market. And we often joke that the name of the company could be one of our biggest assets because while we're in the AI space, what we're actually trying to put forth is that with the prevalence of technology, that people do still buy from people and that understanding people and building relationships will always be part of selling. The only difference is now technology has actually raised the ante so that when I show up and interact with you as a prospect, Bruce now has a, a much different expectation of how informed I should show up, what research I should have done before, and how quickly I can action what Bruce's wants and needs are, right? So technology has actually increased our responsibility to build high quality relationships with our prospects and customers, not replaced it, where I can just spam you with email all day or get you to fill out an online form to pay, to, to make a purchase with me. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting you say that. I often say that the more your work is fueled by technology, um, uh, the more you've got to be aware of what is the human element in the work. And it frees up the human being to do things that only humans can do. Uh, empathize, sympathize, use judgment uh, that, you know, it may be the case that we reach a point in artificial intelligence where uh, we have AI that can create a verisimilitude of empathy and sympathy and exercising real judgment. Uh, but thus far, the human brain uh, seems to be um, more uh, capable than any AI that anyone can imagine, at least so far. Yeah, I, I think one of the ingredients, and, and we certainly don't think uh, at people, our AI is largely at the data layer in terms of making the data smart enough to get where it needs to go, not actually trying to supplant what a person would do. And I think one of the biggest challenges for AI is actually going to be the concept of trust. Um, Stephen Covey's son wrote a book called The Speed of Trust, that there's yep. e economic value in trust, that high trust environments move faster and cost less, and low trust environments cost more and move slower. Um, as we look at technology that can make suggestions to us or prompt what we might be missing or looking for next, 
in very few areas of our life are we ready to just take those recommendations on blind faith, right? I like the suggestions from Netflix. I appreciate the suggestions from Amazon, but I'm not quite ready for them to start buying things for me yet. Um, and I get a little annoyed when they start starting the movie for me before I've actually <laughs> signed up to watch it, right? right? So I do think that there's this human barrier that's going to continue to be important, which is um, this trust element, which is where relationships come in, right? Um, the primary purpose of building relationships in a sales cycle is to get access to superior information um, and, you know, so that you can operate with integrity and understand how to get things done with that customer. Um, I think it's going to be a while, um, if ever, before we will have people trusting in the AI. Um, in yeah, I mean, the, the, the human sales uh, voice, the human sales ear can sense hesitation, uh, can sense um, uh, uneasiness. Um, and, and so, um, and, and, and I, I agree with you I, uh, about the business value of trust and, and, um, uh, I like that uh, book as well. The speed of trust it's, you know, earlier you invoked, uh, president Reagan's trust, but verify and, um, you know, verification is time consuming and costly. Totally. It's, uh, and I think what's interesting is I, I can bring something, you know, to ground in, in a space that we work in with all the telemetry we have about, customer facing team's behavior. We saw a big shift over the last few years, which is, I remember early on in my enterprise selling career, I was taught to get a badge at the company, walk the halls, park in the coffee lot across the street from your account and find a way to do your discovery, which was largely on the ground, you know, shaking hands, getting to know folks. That meant your in-person interactions with your customer were at the top of the funnel or at the beginning of the sales process. Whereas now, I believe what we are continuing to see is that the in-person meeting actually becomes more of a signal that you've reached a level of either trust or readiness that this person now plans to do business with you. So they're ready to move out of the digital. They're ready to move out of the remote and they'd like to sit down and look you in the eye and have a conversation with you before they move forward. So we're seeing the in-person meeting not go away, but the actual purpose of that in-person meeting may be shifting in the sales process and take on new and or different meaning. Yeah, that's that's a really interesting insight. And um, and and I, I, I agree with you. I think that um, the you, you know, you save your powder for the in-person meeting and, uh, you know, hanging around in the lobby or the, the, the cafeteria, if you get that far. Uh, you know, uh, sort of uh, accidentally following somebody into the men's room. I guess maybe that sounds too creepy, but, uh, <laughs> but you know, oh, hey, funny, we should meet. Uh, <laughs> uh, so uh, that, that, yeah, technology can, can, can do a lot to prepare the ground for the, the more high stakes in-person interactions. Um, so so uh, uh, just to put a fine point on it, so what is the size of operation that you're running like? Uh, you, if you're thinking about um, an IPO uh, down the road or around the corner, uh, and just for example, you said uh, you, you went from 50 customers to uh, a whole lot more and big enterprises. Um, how many employees are there at, at People AI? Yeah, uh, we're between 200 and 300 employees right now. Uh, we don't report our revenues publicly at this sure. at this stage, et cetera. Um, but yeah, over the last three years, we definitely did benefit from some of these trends in terms of prior to the pandemic you would often explain to sales leaders this capability to instrument everything that was going on. And there was a little bit of a, Ooh, you know, that feels awfully big brother. Like I'm not sure my sales team would really be up for something like that. And we would often find ourselves having a conversation like, well, 
I'm not sure that a professional golfer or a professional footballer or a professional um, athlete or, or surgeon, if they were getting instrumentation and telemetry about their performance, would, would think of it as big brother. They'd think right. of it as competitive advantage. So when are we going to make that shift? And that was a debate we were having more regularly before the digital lights went out and suddenly everyone had to start selling over Zoom. And then suddenly people started asking questions that I think were the right questions, not are my sellers working? The question is, are my sellers working the right way? And, you know, do I have people doing five one-hour meetings a day or someone doing three 30-minute meetings a day with an hour of prep? Like, what is the difference in terms of how some of the best are managing their time? Um, It was a real point of curiosity for a lot of leaders over the last few years. Yeah. And I mean, look, evaluation and self-evaluation are the key to continuous improvement. If you're not counting your push-ups, how do you know if you're doing more push-ups? Yep. And, and even better, I, I think where we're moving is from let's remove the burden from us having to do the counting while we're performing and then evaluating the outcome and moving to what we really preach, which is getting mastery over leading indicators. So I, I went for a run this morning and I didn't just get information about what my that I've run a mile from my phone, I started getting prompts like, hey, your pace has slowed down, (laughs) right? Even with a little bit of encouragement, like you can do it two tenths of a mile away, estimated time of completion, 22 minutes. And like, I was already like, okay, it's telling me when I'm going to finish my run, you know, and starting to manage the leading indicators while I'm still performing the task. So I have an opportunity to improve it. And I think the challenge for leaders where our jobs may have had one element of compliance, one element of governance, an element of inspection. And of course, we tried to do that in an inspiring way. As the technology takes the compliance and governance off our plate, are we ready as leaders to translate and, and honestly help people focus on what the right leading indicators are at the right moment to change the outcome versus no one wants the leader that sits with you at the end of your workout and say, well, Bruce, you're still overweight. Yeah, <laughs> and, right, uh, exactly. It, it's, 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 you know, um, and uh, it's a, it's a fine line, but it's so much better to have a coach uh, working with you while you're performing so that, you know, they say, ah, you know, get your elbows in, ah, get, you know, get your knees up or whatever it is. Um, and, and then you're being reminded in real time. And so that kind of data, that kind of dashboarding, uh, that kind of, um, dashboarding that is visible, not just after the fact, I mean, the classic sales manager is look, your numbers are low. I know, you know, <laughs> let's stare at the numbers together and try to make them go up. I tell people, I don't hire a financial planner to, to tell me I'm broke or a trainer at the gym to tell me I'm unfit. I, what I'm looking for is actual coaching on actions, preferably while I'm making decisions that would actually change the outcome before I got there. So in the sales world, it's, hey, you have an opportunity of this size. We would normally see these types of people on this level of activity in this sort of an opportunity. But you've only met with two people, both of which have either odd or more junior titles than we're accustomed to seeing. So you need to get broader and wider. Maybe you need to bring in some executives from the from the uh, company that you're working for to help you sell into that account. So giving sellers real actionable coaching while they can still change the outcome versus waiting and judging on the outcome. I think that's the big shift we're seeing in sales leadership right now, which, which frankly, 
challenges us as sales leaders. Do, do you have the skills to manage to leading indicators? And do you even know what the leading indicators are for your business? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I work with companies. Sometimes I ask them about their, their uh, leading indicators and they, oh yeah, we got 31 of them. You got 31 of them. Hmm. Uh, how is anyone making use of that data? Uh, you know, you, you know, are you sure you got 31 of them? Right. And are, are there any that are, are there any that, that align with better outcomes than others? Are there any, are you sure there aren't some that are leading, leading indicators? Well, I, I think, you know, it's funny when you talk about 31 indicators and I'm a big believer that so many trends that we experience at home and in our consumer lives end up making their way into our business lives. Like we, we see it in lots of different areas and patterns. And I, I think there's been a lot of attention given to the challenge, especially for those raising children, um, for those of us that maybe work across with multi-generational teams, that at, that at home, focus has been a real issue, that basically every technology we're interacting with has been engineered to distract and disrupt and essentially hijack our conscious. I don't know if we're as aware of how disruptive that is in the workplace, you know, and I, as I, as someone who leads leaders and leads managers, I tell them, I, I think one of the biggest services we can provide to teams today is actual focus and materiality and prioritization are hard enough to determine inside of a business. It's even more difficult if you've got all of these tools and all of these indicators, and we have more data now at our fingertips then most people are capable of actually actioning or internalizing as individuals, never mind teams of folks. I always joke that nothing drops an IQ of a group more than adding more people to the group. It just, <laughs> the larger the group gets, it just starts, its intellect gets a little more challenging. Okay. It doesn't make any one of the parts less intelligent, but together the group can focus on less. And with so many distractions today, I think one of the biggest challenges we have as leaders is, how do you establish materiality and prioritization and how do you maintain your team's focus when virtually everything and everyone they work with is like, Hey, did you know, did you know, have you thought of right, it? Right, right, right. It's, 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 it's the analog to, you know, you can find a, an infinite number of answers to any question at your fingertips, but uh, the, the challenge now is vetting uh, accuracy. It's, you know, are there facts and logic and, uh, and is this good sourcing, right? So the, the similar with, with leading indicators, uh, you know, you can't focus on everything all at once. Is there one metric that tells us, uh, you know, as you know, business intelligence is good at uh, accessing data and reporting it. Uh, it's good at showing patterns, but where it's really useful is if you know which metrics imply what kind of actions to move the number in one direction or another. And it's, um, you know, back back to the point you, you look at this transition, my grandfather used to cut out newspaper articles for my dad and therefore my dad cut out newspaper articles for me and they would be at the breakfast table. And, you know, years later, I, I remember sitting down with my dad and saying, hey, as he wanted to do it for my son, and I said, I, I just need to let you know that the challenge now is no longer access to information or that great article in Forbes or the Wall Street Journal. We all have access to everything all the time in our pocket. The question is, what information should we be asking, uh, accessing and for what purpose? Ironically enough, I find the Eisenhower matrix, the urgent important matrix to yeah, be yeah. super helpful for people in, in today's Absolutely. era, mainly because most of this technology, which 
usually amplifies or accelerates, is encouraging us to operate only in the urgent half of the urgent important matrix. Yeah, I would say it, it and, 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 and it puts a lot, I mean, look, if there's quadrant one activity that is alerted to you by your handheld supercomputer, by all means, go put out the fire. But uh, most of it is quadrant three and quadrant four activity. And some of it is not urgent at all. And it's not important at all. But a lot of it is urgent insofar as your phone makes a signal. Uh, but there's no importance to it whatsoever. And yeah, yeah, I mean, it's all about quadrant two, baby. Well, and and I, I tell people that if you're living only in the urgent space, which means you're doing both urgent and important, but you're also doing urgent, not important. The thing that's suffering the most is that non-urgent important item, that ordinary thing done well over time, the slow burn of compounding interest, that's going to get you that big impact. And, and that's where I think there's so much white space today because so many of us are living in just the urgent, whether it's important or not, we're just going from one input to the next, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's so true. And uh, yeah, I'm always preaching quadrant two. And uh, uh, speaking of the Covey family, um, Stephen Covey uh, made that much more famous than General Eisenhower did. <laughs> totally. <laughs> totally. Uh, totally. Uh, so, so, um, so, so I want to talk about you because here you are running uh, uh, significant operations. You've, you've been around the block several times, obviously, at least. And, uh, uh, and, and so you, you said earlier uh, something I really liked, which is, uh, well, I'm going to paraphrase that you said you are at least in part a teaching style leader, that you think of leadership as at least one part teaching. Um, I like that a lot, and uh, it's something that we teach in our programs. Um, so tell us more about your your teaching style leadership, about your leadership strategies. Yeah, um, a, a good friend of mine, early on in my leadership career, um, as he was trying to caution me to slow down and understand, I remember he said a, he said a phrase that was one of those Captain Obvious things where he said, "Art, your only leverage is your team. If you leave the team behind, you've got no leverage, right? I was like, okay, yeah, okay. And it kind of rolled my, yeah, I understand. But then over the years, that one statement, the only leverage that you have is your team. And in order for, for us as leaders to bring our teams along with us, we're going to have to educate them, not just on what needs to get done, but why it's important and, and how we all work together. So this is, you know, bringing your team along with you. And I've always found for me, the leaders that I wanted to work for were the ones I could see unlocking potential. They were unlocking potential in individuals or they were unlocking potential in groups. And I think the best talent knows it's going to get compensated. They know they're going to be challenged. What they want to know is, are they going to be around leaders that are going to unlock potential from that, not only them as individuals, but the team to achieve more? And I, I think the way you do that is with a very educational, nurturing style of leadership. I, I do believe in being firm and clear in terms of what the objectives are, where the boundaries are. But from there, um, let's educate and develop people to, to, to be their best version of themselves. Yeah, so unlocking potential, and 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 I like what you're saying that it's not just that you're going to help me unlock my potential, uh, but that uh, because you're good at unlocking potential, and not just of individuals, uh, but of a whole that's greater than the sum of its parts, uh, I'm going to have my potential unlocked and be contributing to a team that is going to have great outcomes so that we're going to be able to participate in those outcomes 
Uh, I guess that's part of what you're saying. Can 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 you elaborate on this? Uh, sure, it's teaching style leadership to unlock potential. And, and maybe some of this comes from I have a services background earlier in my career where your product are the people, right? So consulting and services, you've got to onboard people, train them, and quickly put them into market, making value. And one of the things you learn in the services business, probably like many professional sports owners have learned. If you just try to go buy all the talent that you need purpose-built and you think you can just buy all the expertise, pay top dollar, all the eight. Whenever I hear people saying, I hire eight players, I want you know, superstars, superheroes, I'm always like, ooh, doesn't everybody. Right, but, of course. But, but, but are you the type of organization or leader that can actually hire raw material that's got the potential and develop it? That creates real competitive advantage for your company when you can develop people, not only because you took – a group of people and develop them into something that performed. But the more you build a reputation for being that type of an organization, that type of a leader, you start attracting more talent that wants to get developed. And even some of that top performing talent. I also happen to yeah, believe that business, business is a team sport. And so there is a law of diminishing returns on talent if people can't team. And I just think teaming is one of the hardest capabilities to, to bring into organizations today because there has been a lot promoted around individual enrichment and individual performance, but it's really, really difficult um, to win if you don't win as a team. So Yeah, and we, we also, I mean, uh, in the United States, for sure, and in much of the West, um, we are less communitarian style culture and more individualistic culture. So uh, say more about uh, not only being a teaching style leader who is focused on unlocking potential in individuals, but also unlocking potential in a whole that's greater than the sum of its parts. But um, how do you think about uh, leading as a team or running business as a team team endeavor? Yeah, so I think um, there's a couple couple things. One, um, I do think of myself as a values-based leader. I'm very explicit about my values. I, art I articulate them not only to the people that work for me, but also during the hiring process, I'll, I'll talk about what those values are. Um, and I actually had a, a recent, uh, maybe this is a good example that, that answers both these questions. I had a frontline leader recently um, who we were observing was struggling to hire people more senior than them um, you know, and they're, they're a young up and comer. They're, they're doing really great. And they were, they were fantastic at hiring people that were younger or less experienced, but the role requires them to recruit some people more senior. So we asked them, Hey, give, give, you know, I asked the, the gentleman, give me your pitch. Right. So we walked through why it would be good to work for our company and this, and I'm like, yeah, I'm not buying that. If I'm 10 years older than you, like, why am I coming to work for you? Right. right. And, and, and if your only pitch is you're going to mentor, which is how you've been hiring people younger <laughs> than you. How are you going to pitch me if I'm 10 years your senior, right? Maybe what I want from you as a seasoned journeyman seller might be different than what I might want from you from 25. And so working with that, that leader to develop his pitch about why you would want to work for him across the broad spectrum of talent is an example of where, A, I, I was demonstrating with this in, individual Hey, you like working for me because you understand my values. Um, I actually think predictability is one of the most important things for a leader. Um, and I think people can, can adapt to almost any version of leadership as long as they can predict it and it's consistent. There's nothing more exhausting for a team or an organization than if the, the leadership is not predictable or consistent in terms of how it solves problems or how it, what it celebrates um, or the culture that it provides. So I think by being very explicit about your values, making decisions 
consistently through those values. It allows the team to come together with, you know, the cultural norms of what you celebrate, the stories you tell. Um, yeah. So, so, uh, right. Being unpredictable is like, like, uh, creating a workplace that's more like a Kafka play, right? <laughs> you know, yesterday, this behavior was rewarded today. This behavior is, uh, is, uh, uh, punished, uh, that, that, that is, a, a, a tough environment for a rational creature to, uh, to succeed in. Right. Um, so, so, so one is you gotta be explicit about your values. You gotta, uh, tell stories and say words that, uh, make your values explicit. Um, uh, another is, uh, consistency and predictability, creating consistency and predictability. Yeah. I have, I have another one, which I get, it's funny when people tell you, um, what, you know, they'll say, Oh, what I love most about you. I, I get a lot about analogies I use. And I often believe that the business world is swimming in, you know, mumble soup of business synergy where the rubber meets the sky and strategy is going to do this. And, um, I, I've often found that if you can break down some of these formal business terms into concepts, they land with people better. And I'll give you an example. When I'm managing managers or developing leaders, I'll, hand, I'll, I'll offer them this framework I call pancakes and bicycles. And, and uh, by just using an analogy like pancakes and bicycles, I have a pretty high degree of confidence. This is the first time this person's got any management coaching that started off with pancakes and bicycles. Yeah, I got I got I got to tell you that's probably going to be the lead in this episode. Pancakes and bicycles. Love it. And so I said, look, when you're working with your team, there's two types of instructions you could be giving the team and I want you to ask yourself, are we making pancakes or riding a bicycle? If we're making pancakes, I can give you a step-by-step set of instructions. And with a very high degree of confidence, expect that we're going to get some edible pancakes out the other end of this, whether you've ever made pancakes before in your life or not, right? I can write the steps down, prescribe them to you. And honestly, there's not a lot of value in debating the how. We know these are the steps for making a pancake. There's not a lot of artistry involved. When you start producing pancakes consistently, then you can start to add some bananas and some other things that you want to make it flare. But right now, just need you to make the pancakes. Instruction number two is bike riding. I can explain inertia, gravity, momentum, balance. We could do weeks and weeks of instruction on mechanically how to ride a bike. But I know that you are going to fall. does not matter how much instruction I do. Until you actually experientially learn, you're not going to develop what it means to ride a bike. Your role as a manager when someone's about to get on a bike is to let them know they're going to fall. Let them know that it's okay and tell them, I'm going to be there when the bike falls over and we're going to talk about which of the concepts we discussed you're going to apply again. And your main role is to encourage and get them back on the bike so they can fast fail because it's an experiential learning. If we're making pancakes, your main role is clear governance, clear compliance. Be like, hey, everyone, this is not complicated. (laughs) You're on the swim team. We get wet. (laughs) You're, You're on the... Uh, construction team, you're going to get dirty. Uh, we're making pancakes. This is step one. This is step 10. Let's not debate it. Just do it. Right. And so it's just, just giving a leader a simple analogy, like before you give instructions, ask yourself what type pancakes or bicycles. That's good. You know, that might be a book. There you go. Uh, and I think you could make a short book, pancakes or bicycles. I like it. Picture. We could make it a picture book. <laughs> uh, I mean, you'll need a picture, but I don't. Th- but but I think what you're you're looking for an allegory style book, uh, something like a cross between. Do you remember that book, Fish, from the whenever it was? Oh, the late oh yeah, 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 yeah. The short one, right? And the, yeah, it's a short one. Short ones sell a lot of books. 
And um, so uh, uh, I like that pancakes and bicycles, pancakes or bicycles. That's yeah, that's a yeah. It's, it's pancakes or bicycles. They happen every day. Just to be clear, but you you know what? You take the the other side of it. I talked about the bicycle. If I can give you clear instructions for making pancakes, you know what you don't want me doing? Standing right next to you doing it with you. You're like, hey, I, <laughs> like just give them the instructions and get out of the way and inspect the steps, right? But you don't be in there. The bike riding, though, you're going to need to participate um, in that experience as a leader. So it just helps you really unpack that. Yeah, that's that's great. Uh, give us another one. You got another one like that? Oh, geez. Boy, we've got uh, inspection without coaching is micromanagement. So everyone's big on what they want to inspect. So run, running a, an operations team at, at large scale, I've, I've run operations for thousands of, of people in the field and in large organizations. Everyone's very quick to say what they want to inspect. I need a measurement of this. I need I need Bruce's height. I need his weight. I need his wind speed. I need his velocity. I'm like, great. If I were to give you all of this and you are going to be inspecting Bruce, are you ready to coach? What do you mean? I'm like, let's just, I'm going to make some numbers up. All of Bruce's telemetry is red. What are you going to tell him? You're just going to tell him to run faster? Or are we like, so one of the things I think is given we have massively increased our ability to inspect. Um, I always encourage people like, are you ready to coach before you've earned the right to inspect something? Make sure you're actually going to be offering some coaching on the other side of that. That, that will be helpful. Yeah. I think that's powerful. I think uh, uh, I've heard it described as, are you a coaching style manager or are you a referee style manager? Right. So are you calling balls and strikes? Uh, are you throwing flags onto the field? Uh, or, uh, you know, and then you're sort of outside, you're the one, uh, uh, are, uh, you know, you're the one making decisions about whether is good or bad or somewhere in the middle, um, as opposed to a coach is, is on, on the same team with the player. And the coach is there to help uh, the player score points, not to be standing on the sidelines scoring points. Um, and then also just, um, I'm a big believer in, um, most successes are ordinary things done well over time and, and leveraging the benefits of compounding interest. You know, we, we were told that it was one of the most powerful um, forces in the world, compounding interest, and it's often associated with finances. But I happen to believe, especially for people earlier on in their career, I tell people it applies to networking, um, that building a network um, of people that you contribute to and also receive value from it's not a light switch, not something you turn on when you need it. It's something you just have to do well over time. And when you look at someone with a network you admire, that wasn't something they got because of their current title. It wasn't something they got because of the current outcome. It's something they earned slowly over time by doing a little, a lot of the little things right over time. And that compounding interest will, will create those assets for you, whether it's requiring customers, building teams or acquiring teammates, um, or in your personal life. Yeah. I mean, it's like fitness. I mean, if you work out for three hours today, you're going to be sore tomorrow. If you work out every day, you're going to be in shape. Totally. hundred percent. Um, uh, okay. So, uh, before we get to the end of our time, there's been a, a spectacular conversation and I'm, I'm so, uh, uh, I, I know our listeners are going to love this. Um, so, what I want to leave people with is, you know, what's, what's your, what's the secret of your success? What if, uh, does Art Harding have a, you know, this is my, the secret of my success. So I, I, I have a Art Harding formula for success. It only has two steps. Um, step number one is to know what success looks like for you. Um, and step number two is to care. 
I have a more colorful description. I say to actually give a bleep um, in the future. You mean like you better give a care? Yes, exactly. You, you better give a care. So it's one, know what success looks like. Two, you better care. And what's funny is how many people nod quickly on the first step. Like, oh, yeah, yeah I, I got to know what success looks like. I'm like, whoop, slow down. Slow down because I can help you with step number one. I can't really help you with step number two. Step number two has to be intrinsic. It's going to come from you. So where we're going to spend most of our time is you nodded your head really quickly that you know what success looks like. Do you really know what success looks like in your role? Yeah, yeah, sure. Okay. So much so that you have models that you can look at, people you can emulate or look up that you've studied, maybe people in other, that you've written it down, that you know what the leading indicators are, that you know what success looks like after you're successful as well. Like, have you really studied what success looks like? Because in pursuit of that study, you might find out that you actually don't care about this that much. So a lot of times if I'm talking to someone about performance, I'll, I'll say, hey, Bruce, what was it that you always thought you wanted to do? Or what is it that really captures your interest? You'll be like, oh, I don't know. I'm like, because it's clearly not podcasting. Because <laughs> based on what I'm seeing, we're not seeing number two. And if you actually cared about what, we were, what you were doing, your performance would be higher. And so I think that two-step formula for me... Well, I, I, hope, hope, I, I, I hope you're enjoying this particular experience and that's just a, a, a hypothetical. It was completely hypothetical. I'm I can't. Yeah, absolutely. Kidding. Well, what's funny is you have the same sort of energy. One of the most common things, for good and for bad, I will often get labeled as being a high energy person, and people will ask me, "Art, where does the energy come from?" I I'm confused by that question. I have a natural sense of urgency that life is a gift. We're here to contribute, create, and give back. And I can see the big clock on the wall. I'm confused why everyone else can't. And I've, right. I feel like I could see it when I was 20. I can see it more clearly at 50. And what I want to do is make sure that I'm applying that energy and enthusiasm to something that's important to me. And, and before I know that it's important, I have to understand what success looks like. What does success for a CEO look like? What does success um, for a leader of a technical team look like? What does the success mean as an international business person or international citizen? Um, and so looking at those things that are important to you, and then that energy and enthusiasm will carry you the rest of the way. I love it. Art Harding, thank you for being a guest on The Indispensables. Thank you, Bruce. If you like this episode, please subscribe and leave us a review. You can also follow us on Twitter at goto underscore podcast. That's at goto underscore podcast. Learn more about GoToism in my new book, The Art of Being Indispensable at Work, available now from Harvard Business Review Press, wherever books are sold. And you can learn more about our work at Rainmaker Thinking by visiting us at rainmakerthinking.com. Until next time, stay strong and stay indispensable.